And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, and we have a lengthy passage to consider today. We'll be in chapter 8, verse 6, going all the way through to chapter 9, verse 12. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1032. As always, I'd like to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, we are truly grateful to gather once again as a church family, to rally around your word, to fellowship with one another, and to consider today's text. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding that you would give us an eagerness to learn the truths of your word, that you would give us a heart that's eager uh, to put into practice, to apply what we've learned. Lord, I pray that you would use this entire service to glorify yourself, to edify your church, that it would also be a tool in reaching those who have not yet come to your Son, that they might see the words of this text, that they might be prompted to respond to you for the first time in repentance and faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we are looking at the book of Revelation today. And as you know, most of Revelation is taken up with a, the coming day of the Lord, which is the time of reckoning just before the return of Christ, when the world is made ready for his earthly kingdom. And during this time, divine judgments are meted out, unbelief and evil are put down, God's righteousness is exalted, and many people are redeemed. We've already considered chapters 6 and 7. These chapters cover the opening phase of the day of the Lord. We saw the judgments meted out during that phase, as well as the redemption of many people. And today we're looking at chapters 8 and 9. This section begins the next phase of the day of the Lord, that portion that, that Christ calls the Great Tribulation. This is the second half of that tribulation period. We are getting ever closer to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And because this is a new phase in the day of the Lord, we also have new imagery in the text. So, chapter 6 and 7, God's judgments were dispensed from a scroll. Now, His judgments will be dispensed via a series of trumpets which will be blown. We're going to go through each one of the trumpet judgments together, but before we do, I'd like to offer just a couple of, of general observations about the trumpet judgments. Observation number one, as we go through these, you're going to notice that there are seven trumpet judgments, just as there were seven scroll judgments, and as there will be seven bowl judgments. In fact, you'll find the number seven repeating itself over and over again in the book of Revelation. And that's because in the Bible, the number seven is the number of perfection or completion. And what we have here in Revelation with the day of the Lord is God bringing his perfect or complete judgments on the world of unbelief. And so the number seven comes up over and over again. Seven scroll judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. He is meeting out his final, his perfect judgments. 
But then secondly, I want to say a word about the purpose of all of these judgments. The purpose is twofold. Number one, it is to bring an end to all evil in the world. But then secondly, it is to bring the unregenerate to faith and repentance. See, what God is doing with all of these judgments is he is shaking unregenerate humanity out of its spiritual complacency. He is helping unregenerate humanity to see that he is there, he is real, he is a God of justice and of holiness, that his kingdom is near, and they should get ready for it. They should be turning to him in repentance and faith. This is also why we see an escalation in the judgments as the day of the Lord progresses. As a a lesser judgment fails to secure repentance, he brings another level of judgment. And then when that fails to secure their repentance, he brings yet another level of judgment. He is demonstrating the obstinacy of the human heart, and he is also shaking men free of that obstinacy. And friends, I trust you see that this is an act of God's grace. How much better to face the temporal judgments of God, if those will lead you to repentance and faith and secure your everlasting life, how much better to have that happen than to go through your temporal existence with an easy life, only to find yourself passing through hell's gates afterwards where there is no escape. And so God is being gracious here as he shakes humanity out of its obstinacy. All right, these are my general observations about the judgments. Let's jump into the text now. Let's look at the trumpet judgments. It's going to take me two weeks to cover them all. Today we'll just look at numbers one through five. So we start with judgment number one. This takes us to chapter eight, verse six. The Apostle John writes, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Verse seven, And the first angel blew his trumpet, And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Okay, so in this first trumpet judgment, we see destruction falling from above, and we have this unusual combination of elements. We have uh, fire and hail and blood. You wouldn't normally see these things together, but here they are, all falling from heaven at once. They do bear one thing in common, though, and that is that all three of these have been used by God in the past to mete out his judgments. So you might recall in the book of Genesis, as God is bringing his plagues upon ancient Egypt, um, trying to release the Jews from their slavery, uh, one of the plagues is hail, another is blood. You may also recall God's judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained fire and brimstone down from heaven. And so God has used all of these judgments in the past, but now here in the day of the Lord, book of Revelation, God is combining them all and sending them down upon the earth. As I said earlier, God is bringing his final, his climactic judgments to the earth. And so now we see them here all together. In verse 7b gives us the results. It says, and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So massive ecological devastation is the result of this first trumpet blast. And yet, you'll also notice here that nothing falls directly upon human beings. 
So with this trumpet judgment, God is sending a warning. He is causing ecological destruction, but he's not causing human destruction. He is shaking unrepentant humanity out of its complacency, helping them to understand that he is there. He is real. His judgments are severe. They should repent and trust in him. They should bow before his son. But of course... Obstinate humanity will not repent, and so the next trumpet is blown. That takes us to verse 8. It says, And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So another judgment that falls from heaven to earth, described as a great burning mountain. Now, there's no way for us to know exactly what the Apostle John was seeing here. Perhaps it was a meteor, a comet, something like that. But it falls upon the earth, it is thrown into the sea, and we see the results. It says, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So with the first trumpet judgment, something falls from heaven, and it destroys land. Now something is falling, and it is destroying oceans. It says that a a third of the... A third of the water became like blood. Now, John may be using the language of appearance here, meaning that upon impact, there was some kind of a change in the water. It took on a reddish hue, so it looked like blood. Or he could also be speaking in literal terms here. We see the massive destruction of marine life. Perhaps their blood is mixing with the water, creating, creating this disaster. So this time, we see an escalation in the trumpet judgments. We have massive loss of marine life, and then we have a moderate loss of human life as those aboard ships perish from the impact. This is another warning from God. The judgments are getting worse. He is shaking humanity out of its complacency. But still, humanity does not repent. And so we come to the third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. It says... And the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on springs of water, and the name of this star is Wormwood. So yet another object falling from the heavens down to the earth, this one described as a great star. Again, we can't know exactly what the Apostle John was seeing, but it is a dramatic Judgment, And the name of the star is wormwood. That's a word that means bitter, means bitter or poison. You'll notice it affects all of the fresh water on the earth. It affects lakes, rivers, and springs. It makes the water bitter or it poisons the water. Another escalation. First we had just plant life. Then we had the loss of ocean waters and marine life. Now we have the loss of fresh water, and we have great loss of human life. The warnings are escalating. The judgment's becoming more severe. Well, sadly, humanity still does not repent of its rebellion against God. And so the fourth trumpet is blown, verse 12. It says, And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So with this trumpet blast, we have the judgment of darkness. 
Darkness is a symbol of divine judgment throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. You'll recall in the Old Testament period, one of the plagues that God unleashed on ancient Egypt was the plague of darkness. You'll also remember in the Gospels, as we have the the narrative of the crucifixion of Christ, it says from noon until 3 p.m., God shrouded the crucifixion scene with darkness. God was communicating to all the witnesses there that the cross was a place of divine judgment. All the sins of humanity being placed on the shoulders of Christ, God was dealing with human sin there. That's why he shrouds the cross in darkness. The book of Amos refers to the day of the Lord as a day of darkness. Here we find a literal fulfillment of that prophecy as the world literally grows dark. Sun, moon, and stars are no longer providing the light that they once did. Perhaps it's an atmospheric change such that the light of these heavenly bodies cannot penetrate through to the earth's surface. Friends, while no lives are lost in this fourth trumpet judgment, I can imagine mass panic setting in as sun, moon, and stars are no longer giving the light that they once had. And friends, this fourth trumpet judgment is a dark omen of things to come. That's its intention, to be a dark omen of things to come. That takes us to verse 13. Verse 13, we have an interlude in the divine judgments. Notice what it says here. It says, And then I looked... And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. Now, perhaps this eagle is an angel who has the appearance of an eagle because of wings. But this eagle, it says, it, it cried with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Here were its words. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, woe is a term expressing grief or pity or misery. And this eagle is explaining that as bad as trumpets one through four were, trumpets five through seven are going to be even worse. They're going to be worse not just in degree, but also in kind. You see, the prior trumpet judgments touched on marine life, animal life, plant life, but trumpets five through seven will touch human life. And specifically, these judgments are going to target those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a technical term in the book of Revelation that occurs many times. We find it in chapters 3, 6, 8, 11, 13, and 17, and it always, always refers to unregenerate humanity. They are the earth dwellers or the the worldly people. And so the eagle is flying overhead after the first four judgments have have fallen, and he is sending out a warning to all humanity, woe to you if you are here for the next three judgments, because they will be far worse than the first. They're going to target unregenerate humanity. And friends, this eagle is flying overhead, making his announcement because the God he represents is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. Ezekiel 18, verse 23 says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And so, yes, 
God is a, is a God of righteousness and justice and holiness. He has absolutely committed himself to putting away evil and those who commit evil without repentance. Yet he's also a God of love and mercy and of grace. And he wishes to give all people an opportunity to respond to his call for repentance. So he sends this eagle overhead. The eagle is warning of greater judgments to come. It is an implicit call for the unregenerate to repent, to forsake their sin, to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, to to be protected from these judgments. But sadly, friends, still, still the unregenerate will not repent. And so the next round of trumpet judgments begins. That takes us down to chapter 9. And verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, something very important to note this time. We have another object falling from the heavens down to earth. It's also called a star, but notice this is no ordinary star. It's called a star in verse 1, but then the word he, he is also applied to it. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And so this is not a literal star. This is not a meteor, a comet, or anything like that. This is a living being, a living being. And friends, it is almost certainly the devil himself. The devil is the star fallen from heaven to earth, given the key to the abyss. Listen to Isaiah 14, verse 12, a passage that speaks to us of the devil. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And then Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus, speaking of the devil, says this, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. And so this fallen star here in Revelation 9 is the devil. And the fifth trumpet judgment, therefore, involves God giving to the devil the power to throw open the doors of hell. That is the bottomless pit. And look what happens When he does so, verses 2 through 4, it says, And he, the devil, opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of hell. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Verse 3, And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, back in chapter 7, verse 3, God placed his seal on his people. During the day of the Lord, many, many people will be saved. And God places his stamp, his seal, upon those who believe in him during the day of the Lord. It is God's seal of protection. 
the judgments that fall on the earth dwellers will not fall on his people. And so here we see that God, through the the fifth trumpet judgment, he has given the devil the authority to open the bottomless pit. A swarm of locusts has emerged from the pit. They have permission to go after the earth dwellers, the unregenerate, but they may not touch God's people, those who have received him. Verses 5 and 6 It says, and they, that is these locusts, they were allowed to torment them, the unregenerate, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And so this swarm is permitted to harass the unrepentant, but not forever just for a period of five months, and they're not allowed to torment them to the point of death. They must stop before that. We see God's sovereign work here, just like in the book of Job. God has given authority to the devil, but he has told the devil how far he may go, and he says, no farther. That's what we see here in this judgment. Now the important question, who are these locusts, or what are these locusts. The Apostle John offers us a description of the locusts, verses 7 through 10. He moves from their heads to their tails. Let's look at the description together. Verse 7, in appearance, he says, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. So these are exalted beings. Their faces were like human faces. So they are intelligent beings. Verse 8, their hair was like women's hair. I'm not sure what that signifies. But then their teeth were like lion's teeth, so they are ferocious beings. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They're very powerful beings. And then verse 10, they have tails and Stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So they are weaponized beings. You can see from the description that these are no ordinary locusts. They are exalted, intelligent, ferocious, powerful, weaponized creatures. Verse 11, they are organized under a leader. It says, and they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. That's a word that means the destroyer, the destroyer. Friends, now we understand who these locusts are. This is an army of demons released from the depths of hell by the devil himself, and they are organized under the command of an angel called the destroyer. See, friends, not all demons are free to roam the earth today. In fact, as I speak to you right now, there is a whole host of demonic beings imprisoned in the abyss, and they have been there for a very, very long time. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 speaks of them. It says, quote, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in chains under gloomy darkness. And in 1 Peter 3 verse 18 We have this statement, the spirits who are in prison. And so right now, as I am speaking to you, there is a host of demons 
in hell, chained in that bottomless pit. They are not allowed to torment anyone. But with the fifth trumpet judgment, they shall be released from their hellish prison. God shall give the devil the authority to do this. They shall be released from their prison and permitted to afflict unrepentant humanity for five months. Friends, there is a really, really important lesson here for both believers and non-believers alike. And let's talk about this lesson now. Friends, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, humanity's rebellion against God has been inspired and facilitated by the devil. Think about Genesis chapter 3. Here we have our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, an absolute perfect paradise. No sin, no suffering. Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. They enjoyed fellowship with one another, all as is as it was meant to be. But then the devil infiltrated that garden, and he took the form of a serpent, and the devil began whispering lies to Adam and Eve. See, God had given one command to Adam and Eve in that garden. He had said to them, You shall not eat of the forbidden fruit, for on the day that you do eat of it, you will die. But the devil said to Adam and Eve, You shall not surely die. Rather, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. In other words, the devil's lie was this, that God is out to oppress you, but I am out to set you free. Reject God, follow me, and know what freedom is like. You will be as God if you eat this fruit. Friends, you and I understand that the devil was not seeking Adam and Eve's good in the Garden of Eden. He was trying to destroy them and all their posterity with them. Friends, the devil is not a philanthropist, a lover of humanity. He's a misanthrope, a hater of humanity. His goal is human destruction. His goal is to separate people from God and then to watch as they ruin their lives. That is the devil's goal. And since Christ's resurrection, it's a goal he's been pursuing as an all-consuming passion. Because the scriptures tell us that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ dealt the death blow to the devil and his plans. He knows his time is short. He knows the kingdom of God is coming. He knows that his destiny is the eternal lake of fire. And so he is more active now than ever. And as the day of the Lord unfolds, he will be more active still. He wants to destroy as many lives as he can, take as many with him into the lake of fire, as possible. Friends, this means that those who listen to his lies, those who follow after him in rebellion, rather than following after God, are choosing the road to ruin. They are choosing the road to ruin. Let's look again at today's text. We're here in Revelation chapter 9. God gives to the devil the power to open the doors to the abyss, to release the swarms who have been imprisoned there. Now the devil is at full strength. He has all of the demons under his command. What does he do now that he is at full strength? Does he gather these demons together, organize them under Apollyon? Does he wage war against God? Does he command the demons to fight against the angels who are blasting these trumpets? 
Does he protect the people who are showing loyalty to him and rebellion against God? No. What the devil and all of his hosts do is torment their own subjects. They are finally given all the authority, and now they use it to hurt their own followers. See, friends, right now I believe that God is restraining the devil and his hosts. They can wreak havoc in this world, but they don't have total freedom. What happens at the blast of the fifth trumpet is that God gives the devil that freedom. He says, here are all of your forces. You have total freedom for five months. You cannot kill, but you can do anything else that you want. What is the devil going to do? He's going to ruin the lives of all those who have followed him. All those who have been doing the devil's bidding. All those who have remained stubbornly, stubbornly rebellious toward God. Friends, this is what the fifth trumpet judgment is all about. It is God removing the restraints on the devil and his whores, giving them, to do, them permission to do what they've always wanted to do. This judgment is giving unregenerate humanity a taste of what it is like to truly be under the devil's control. You see, for ages and ages, humans have believed the lie that following the devil, following a life of of sin and rebellion against God, that that is the path to freedom, that that's where the good life is to be found. For eons, they've believed the lie that that following God, that bowing to Him is Lord, that, that living according to His law, that that is what shackles a person. They've believed that lie. But now they are told the truth. Now they learn the truth as the devil finally has the ability to do what he has always wanted to do. They find that the devil is a difficult master. His intent is not to do them good. It's not to give them freedom. He wishes to destroy them, even as he will one day be destroyed. My friends, freedom is living under God's kingship. Misery is defined as living apart from God, living like the devil. Friends, there's only one way to be spared from the misery that we see in this text, and that is to respond to God through Christ, to accept his gospel offer. Yes, God is a God of holiness and justice. We see that in today's text, but he's also a God of of mercy and grace and love. The scriptures tell us that it was out of his love that God sent his eternal son into the world, gave his son human flesh so that his son was now fully God and fully man. It was out of love that God sent his son, allowed him to live among us for more than 30 years, and then went to the cross and voluntarily took upon his shoulders the full weight of our sins. It was out of love that the father judged our sins at the cross of Christ. Christ being our all-sufficient substitute. The scriptures tell us that when we receive this gift of God, when we, when we accept Christ in repentance and faith, that God forgives us of our sins. He gives us a new righteous standing before him, and he trades death for life. He gives us beauty in the place of ashes. John, John, excuse me, John 10.10 says this, The thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you see how different Christ is from the devil? The devil is a king who would destroy his own subjects, but Christ is a king who would give his life for his subjects. He died that they might have life. 
Christ is the kind of a king that you would want to be ruled by. He's a king that gives you life and hope and peace and forgiveness and joy. Hear me well, ladies and gentlemen. There's only one being in this contest who is on your side. It is God through Christ. He's the only one who truly desires your good. He's the, he alone wants you to have life. And he's provided the way, but you must, you must receive his gift. Won't you do so today? Won't you see the kind of a king that your God is? To see the gift that he has offered you in Christ and to receive that gift, to, to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ, to make his payment for sins your own, to make his righteousness your own. If you will do that, then God will put his seal upon you. You will be his. You will have everlasting life. My friends, if I can conclude my message now. This morning we've been looking at the first five of the trumpet judgments. We've seen how these judgments escalate as we go. Each judgment is more severe than the previous, and that is because God is shaking unregenerate humanity out of its complacency. The fifth judgment was the worst to date. Uh, the, uh, the eagle of chapter 8, verse 13, calls it the first woe. It is giving the devil all the authority he's always wanted. It's giving the unregenerate world what they said they wanted, a life under him instead of a life under God. We see the tragic results of it. My friends, this should induce all of us to turn to God in faith and repentance, seeing that he's the one who's on our side, not the devil. God is the only one who loves you, friends. Will you not love him in return? Or will you refuse his loving offer? Look down at verse 12 now. The eagle says the first woe, excuse me, John says the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. We have not seen the worst yet. Turn to the Lord in faith. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We, we pray that you would help the, the words of this text to sink down deeply. Lord, the images here are frightening. The talk of judgment makes us uncomfortable. And yet we know that you have included this portion in your word because of your love. You want to give us all a glimpse of what awaits in that coming day of the Lord. You want to give us an opportunity to respond to you in repentance and faith. You want us to see that the devil's lies are just that. They are lies. That you speak the truth. That you are on our side in this context, not him. That life under your lordship is where freedom is found, not under the devil. Lord, we pray that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts. We pray that you would awaken faith in our hearts and Lord, if there is someone here who has never, never received your son, might they do so today and then give them the courage to, to tell me, tell Pastor Scott or a Christian friend here about it so we might help them in their next steps on this new path. Thank you for the time you've given us today, Lord, and we commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.